list is inerrancy. I, I brought it up a little bit last week, told you I was going to speak some on Sunday, which I did. I spoke to that a little bit in the message. So I wanted to see if you had any other thoughts on trusting the truthfulness of Scripture, the importance of that we trust that God's Word is true. And regardless of what people may say, we kind of run into difficult passages, issues, uh, you know, hard to reconcile passages, that there are answers. There, there's there's uh, the opportunity there. The Holy Spirit guides us to an understanding of that. But any questions on the idea, the topic of inerrancy? Settled in, you good? <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know now more scriptures that I can present to her, but without that background of faith, and I don't have a PhD in psychology like Robbie Zacharias or whatever. Yeah. I would just say call Pastor Curtis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate those calls. <laughs> taking notes, the book she just mentioned, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, there are a couple of volumes out. She says there's an updated version, so those are good resource tools uh, for things along the lines that we've been discussing. Uh, an introductory book from Josh McDowell to that is called More Than a Carpenter. Uh, it's a very short read, probably 90, 100 pages, big print, so it's not, not too difficult to get through. Very good uh, starting resource, as well as uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, very good introductory uh, apologetic uh, study. So those are some... some uh, documents for you there. Yeah, Matt had sent me an article today, uh, R.C. Sproul. Somebody had brought this issue up to him about the, you know, the, all the errors in the Bible. And so he told somebody, he said, well, meet me at 1 o'clock tomorrow and bring me 50 of them. I said, you know, if it's just full of them, 50 shouldn't be too hard to find. And so the guy came next to he's like, I was up all night and I could only come up with 30. And so he said he walked through the 30 and I, I emailed him back. What I loved about Sproul's article was like the last three or four sentences. He said, man, he didn't really ask me the tough ones either. The ones he asked, I knew those answers. It was, he said there were a few of them I was really worried he was going to come up with and, and 
and I, I'm kind of, you know, not as sure about it. I was like, man, that's me sometimes when I pe- ask people, hey, which one are you talking about? And they'll start with something I'm like, oh, boy, it's going to be one of those really tough ones. I'm like, oh, that one's easy. You know, I can handle that. So uh, good stuff. Well, let me tack on to that. Uh, just a couple of things on this inerrancy issue. Also remember that inerrancy still allows for people uh, in Scripture to speak uh, with uh, quotations that convey content, even though maybe not a direct quote. You know, we're very big in today's culture and society on direct quotes. Well, this person said this, and you go and watch the video, and then you get the whole, well, that's not what I meant. And so we get all the spin, and then you get the no spin zone and all that kind of stuff trying to clarify. So we're real big on direct quotes, but we're in a day and age unlike you know any era in history where most of the stuff was passed on in oral traditions. And so somebody conveying truth and knowledge of what was spoken uh, in biblical languages didn't have quotation marks. You know, they didn't write and say, well, this is what was spoken. It was just, this is the message that was conveyed. And so for someone to say, you know, I, I uh, Shelly and I had a discussion one night, one of the kids had texted, said, dad, mom said dinner's ready. And so I sent a text back and said, tell her I'll be there in about 10 minutes. Well, when I get there in about 15 minutes, <laughs> Shelly, you know, she said, you're late. I told the kids to text you. And I said, I told them I'd be in about 10 minutes. And she said, well, they told me it would be a few minutes. I'm like, okay, well, a few minutes is 10 minutes, you know, is that, you know, however that works out. So they didn't convey my exact message. So she was expecting, you know, a few. And I was like, well, 10's a few to me. So that whole dynamic. uh, But, you know, just to be able to say that, you know, 8,000 people were killed yesterday at whatever. Well, if that number was 7,822 or 8,157, is 8,000 still a rough estimate of that? You know, if you don't have the, you know, that's within the ballpark. It still conveys the tragedy of the loss of life in that. And so scripture, uh, sometimes in that, that happens as they convey the truthfulness of it, particularly when you come to the words of Christ. Also remember uh, that people were alive after Christ had lived. And if they, if someone had spoken something that, well, Jesus said, and it wasn't what Jesus said, there were eyewitnesses to the fact who had raised their hand and said, oh, wait a second, that's not what happened. That's, that's one of the things that people argue and try and say that the, um, the disciples and the women all went to the wrong tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning, and therefore that's why they thought Jesus was resurrected. They were at the wrong place. Well, the whole issue with that is you've got the religious leaders who went uh, to the officials and said, you need to put guards there because they're going to come and try and steal the body during the night so they can say that this, you know, this revolutionary was resurrected from the dead. If that had taken place, don't think for a second those guys would have said, hey, wait a second, you're at the wrong tomb. See, here's the right tomb, here's the body. But you know what? They didn't do that. They made up a story about the guards falling asleep, which should have cost them their life. It was a cover-up because there was no body. You know, someone would have clearly, you know, spoken into those things. So, you know, recognizing all that in history, uh, still those things, the, those, those, the quotations and conveying the correct content still allows for inerrancy uh, to take place, even though it may not be an exact word-for-word or, or a very exact same uh, account of things. Particularly when you get into the synoptics, you know, you got three people telling the same story. You know, if we're all right here and we see an accident take place in the parking lot and the police officers come in and interview us, they're going to hear, you know, different details from each person depending on what we saw and our estimations of things. You know, people that estimate distance and weight and all that kind of stuff uh, can vary greatly. All right, I got time for one joke before uh, we move on. (laughs) This whole uh, time conveying thing. We're about the little five-year-old boy that walked out to his dad in the garage and he said, Dad, what's sex? 
and the dad, boy, the blood pressure went up. You know, his face got all red, and he fumbled through for about eight minutes, the birds and the bees, and just, you know, totally butchered everything. Just couldn't believe he was doing that. And he said, all right, son, does that make sense? And the little boy's, you know, real bug-eyed, kind of shook his head yes. And the dad said, well, well, son, he said, why in the world did you even ask me what sex is anyway? And the boy said, because mom told me to come and tell you dinner would be ready in a few secs. <laughs> I got it. Yeah, yeah. All right. right, So, moving right along to something much better than that joke. That was the joke. Yeah. Uh, Genesis overview. This is, I told you we're going to kind of give out the uh, one-page synopses on each of the book of the Bible. We're finally to Genesis, and so this is your one-page. If you have a folder, want to put this in, this is way boiled down, all right? Uh, What's going to happen is we're going to spend probably several weeks on Genesis. Like next week, we're going to get in Genesis 1 and kind of start working our way through. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time here because it's very, very important as the foundation uh, for everything out of this book. But we will pick up the page. Uh, from there, particularly getting into Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, we'll cover those pretty fast, all right? So, you know, getting into that. But this is our overview, and I want to walk through this tonight. Again, the whole goal is being, one is to get big picture, high-level stuff, key cogs, important things on there, and then you can dive in uh, from around this. So let's walk through uh, Genesis here, the name of the book. Uh, I put the uh, phonetic spelling and pronunciation in here for you because sometimes from one language to another, it doesn't convey for us. But the Hebrew title means in beginning, and then the Greek translators worked off of the word origin, source, or generations because you read about the generations of persons that are there. So they gave it a different name name, and then that's the name that we've carried over into our English part, and they're both fine. Beginnings is what the book is about, you know, as a whole, how things got started, but it's also marked in generations of those early beginnings, so, you know, the issue there. The author is not directly named, but we clearly see in Scripture that the the bulk of God's Word comes back to and identifies Moses as the author of Genesis, as well as the first five books of the, of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Penta means five, so it's the first five books. Moses is given credit for that, and uh, you see the, the number of references is there. It's very, very clear uh, that he is given this uh, honor in Scripture and recognizes. We talked last week about holy men being carried along by the Holy Spirit and God giving them insight. Obviously, we must recognize that God inspired and gave special, specific insight into the beginnings and the origins of people for Moses to be able to write down some of these things that took place well before he was ever there, okay? You know, as the beginning started and, and human beings came into existence, oral traditions were there for decades and centuries before people started writing down their language and beginning to convey that. And that's why part of our recording of history and time, uh, there's a big gap of window where we're not, we just don't have a whole lot of dating in that because there weren't written records to be able to compare things to and we weren't tracking things uh, according to a calendar. And so uh, certainly God's sovereignty, his intervention and his inspiration is very important 
important in this book of beginnings because God had to tell somebody and reveal what happened when nobody was there. All right, so God played a very specific role in that part of it. It's not like Moses writing, oh yeah, the beginning, I was there with God that day and here's how that shook out. <laughs> he wasn't, so God uh, was doing that. The date of this book uh, spans more than the other 65 together, some 2,400 years approximately. All right, we had that conversation last week. Um, the, the time of creation to Exodus, and that's when we can start picking up some dates in history, putting some time on the calendar, uh, is in about the 15th century B.C. The settings, it starts in the Fertile Crescent. If you remember, this is the area from the Mediterranean Sea. There's this patch of rivers, the Tigris-Euphrates River, that come down to the one straight part over there above... Uh, that one place, yeah. And so it's the Fertile Crescent. It's called the Fertile Crescent because stuff would grow there. It was fertile, all right, because of those rivers bringing that water. It moves from there to a focus on the nation of Israel in that region, although geographically it's not what we see and know today, but just generally in that region. And then the book ends in Egypt. And so does anybody remember why the book ends in Egypt? They moved there because of the famine. Because of Joseph, all right, who was what? Sold in slavery by his brothers. Yes, served for Pharaoh, had Pharaoh's right hand, pretty much ran the country uh, on Pharaoh's behalf, and God blessed in tremendous ways. Great story. You know, we'll, we'll pick up that part uh, with Joseph and how that works out, and seeing that God's sovereignty that you know Joseph told his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good, how God can redeem uh, terrible, awful situations for his, his glory. So Joseph there established, brothers think he's dead. The humor in that is the brothers come in, they don't recognize Joseph, he kind of messes with them a little bit, you know, the, the, the cup and the sack and all that kind of stuff uh, that, that shakes out and then they all come to Egypt uh, and then there's that uh, also very important uh, idea and understanding that when the Pharaoh died another Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph didn't have that appreciation for what had happened historically and there's a you know big truth for us in that as well that each generation has to walk with God in their own time and according to God's plan and purpose for them in that generation. We can't live off the heritage and the legacy of the one who's gone before. It's up to us and our faithfulness and our obedience in that. So they wind up in slavery. Pharaoh doesn't know. They spend 400 years in that slavery. And you go, wow, I'm just a, but God knew it was going to happen. He told Abraham and he, he walked him through. That's the whole thing of the promised land. Living there, God says, you're going to go into slavery and I will bring you back to the promised land. So these promises, as God fulfills that uh, in ways that uh, we, we may look at and, and not see how it's going to happen. The audience basically can be just everyone because it's written to and it talks about Abraham blessing all the peoples of the world. Uh, so therefore, all peoples can benefit from the truths laid out in this Genesis account, which brings us to the purpose to reveal how the sin of man is met by the intervention and the redemption of God. You get this awesome movement that begins to take place, that things start out in perfection. God creates perfection. Adam is there. Eve is there. They walk in the garden with God. There's this intimacy. There's this relationship. And then a problem happens. They sin. They disobey. And what's the, the immediate reaction? They're guilty. They feel ashamed. They go and hide from God. And God comes in the garden. Where are you? 
you know, not that God didn't know where they were. He was giving them that opportunity to confess, to come clean. What's happened? Why are you hiding from me? We, we, we know one another. There's this relationship, and now it's been broken. You know, you've got this sin, this, this shame, this guilt that's there. And so you start off with perfection, and right out the gate, there's a problem. And then here's the beauty of the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture paints a picture and moves us forward where in God's plan, He seeks to redeem us, to restore us back to that relationship, that intimacy that was lost when we hid from God because of our shame. And that way is made possible through a relationship with Christ, although it's not perfected because we still sin and we still have the adversary in Satan, but it continues to move through the pages of Scripture to the book of Revelation, to the concept when everything gets reset and we return to that state of perfection, that permanent unity, relationship, uh, and closeness with God in eternity. So it's this awesome, this start this great picture at the beginning, all the problems in between that moves to returning to that state, that relationship with God in the end. So you just got to get that whole scope uh, of the book. So as we think about the theme, you know, God's choice of a nation through whom he would bless all nations, little uh, little activity for us here. Call out, what, what is a favorite book that you have read? Maybe recently or just in the past, just a favorite book of yours. Tale of Two Cities. Tale of Two Cities, all right. Karen Kingsbury. My wife loves her. She's, and she's always crying toward the end of the <laughs> Get that. Yeah. Secret Diary of Sarah Chamberlain. Secret Diary of Sarah Chamberlain. She's the author. Oh, you're the author. <laughs> Be one of my favorites, too. <laughs> Who? Frank Peretti. Frank Peretti. Okay. Good storyteller. Calico Joe. Calico Joe. All right. John Grisham. Oh, I love John Grisham. All right, Charles Spurgeon. Okay, Doctor in Theology books. All right, The Hobbit. Okay, Francine Rivers. Okay, I think that's another one Shelley reads some of. You remember the red fern, where the red fern grows? I remember reading that? It was probably the first book I think I read that made me cry, and I was back all embarrassed. And you know, remember I shouldn't be crying at this book, you know. And remember doing that. All right. What about let's let's shift gears from books to movies. Call a favorite movie you have, and it's okay. We won't judge you by just you know. <laughs> just go and get Tommy Boy out of the way. <laughs> the Notebook. The Notebook. All right. Shelly was watching that again and crying again last night. So y'all noticing a pattern here? <laughs> get this all the time. Who? Pride and Prejudice. Okay. Saving Bright Ryan. Okay. Star Wars. Star Wars. All right. Courageous. John Wayne. <laughs> God bless him. What men in black is what you said? <laughs> Blues Brothers. All right. Well, the reason this little uh, diversion here on, on books and movies is, you know, when you look at that, at, Caleb came home from his uh, sixth grade English class, and they're, they're looking at climax, the climax in a movie and how that's so very important in books and in storytelling because you, you got this problem, you got this you know, situation, you're trying to reach a goal, and there, there's an issue, there's a challenge that's here, and it builds to this climax, so you follow along. So how's it going to get resolved? You've got the antagonist and the protagonist, and you know, there are setbacks along the way. And, I mean, it's what makes for a compelling story. 
think about this whole idea of stories and what enthralls you. And you, you I mean, you've had those books where you just can't, you're like, okay, are, are, you don't want to put it down. I know I need to go eat, but I would just one more chapter. And those authors that they bring you up, you like finish something in one chapter, you're like, that's good. And you have four paragraphs to go before the chapter is over. And by the time you finish those four paragraphs, you're right back where you started to get started. And don't you, those cliffhanger type things of, of how's it going to happen. And then you're watching movies when they're, they put on TV and they always stop them right at the oh what's going to happen next that suspense that keeps you moving how is this going to resolve what's going to be next when you come to scripture I mean you see so much from this beginning in perfection to know that hey perfection is going to be here on the end and what I try to do sometimes as I, as I teach and, and I remind people is when you come to scripture try and put yourself in the midst of that story and the context and knowing what was going on because it brings such a richness such a depth to the understanding of those things. It's, it's a little hard for us because when you're reading through some sections of the Old Testament or you're reading about Jesus' life you know what happens at the end and you can't unlearn that you know and unforget it but I always challenge people try and imagine that you didn't know how it was going to turn out you're here you see this what's going to happen next and so you come back to the book of Genesis okay you got this great perfection and then you have the fall well, what happens now well conditions really deteriorate and God wipes everybody out Okay, well, there we go. <laughs> he's starting over. But you got Noah. Okay, he's going to start over. Noah's a righteous man, loved the Lord. Neighbors made fun of him, all this. Okay, they're, they're getting a new start. Things are better now. And then Noah falls into sin, and it continues, and then you get the Tower of Babel. And so you keep meeting all of these challenges, thinking, it, is it going to get better? What, what's going to be next? There are all these setbacks, these hills to come up against. You get Abraham in here, and, and what he runs into, and you know his, his wife trying to you know disguise hers so that she doesn't get hit on by other men and all this. And, and then the promise of the, the heir, and he has Ishmael. Like, okay, well, there you go. No, it's not Ishmael. Well, then how's it going to happen? So you just over and over, you run into these challenges. And then in Christ's life, this thing, here's the Messiah. And you're going, because again, we know, we've read the Old Testament. We've had it interpreted for us. We see Jesus and go, how did they miss it? You ever think that about the disciples? I know that you do. You look at the disciples and go, how boneheaded were those guys? Are you kidding me to see all this sort of stuff? And they still didn't get it. We're not any different. I mean, we have a hard time grasping these things as well. It's this constant movement, this flow through this of God's promises, his plans, his purposes moving forward and over and over and over again. There are challenges. There are obstacles. There are setbacks because there are human beings involved. But you know what? God continues on. He keeps moving. He keeps working. His power goes forth until ultimately, finally, one day it's going to be reset, made right in Him. We have that to look forward to. You know, We're still a part of that story and this history uh, that's being worked out. It's awesome when you see this theme of how God would move through the nations and how He would bring His promises to pass. Key words uh, in Genesis, beginnings and blessings. You'll see those things over and over again. Uh, beginnings, how it started and blessings that God promised. Uh, key phrase, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Key verses, creation, the fall, the promise to Abraham. Huge titanic verses, pegs to hang our hats on in that. Keynote, 
little activity here. Genesis is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament. Chapters 1 through 11 alone are quoted over 100 times in the New Testament. And oftentimes these are not just mentioned, but quoted word for word. You see 165 times. It's not just a reference back to, it's a direct quote from the book of Genesis. This very, very important pivotal book. So here's a little activity for us. And I don't have a master list and I'm going to check off. You see a lot of references here. You tell me, think of some places where Genesis is referenced in teaching and in, in illustration for whatever in, in the New Testament. You kind of call out to me some of the references from Genesis, Gospels, rest of the New Testament. Go. Hebrews, where? Got to eat. Who said that? Hebrews. Hebrews. You, you know what parts are kind of the topic purpose? Hmm. <laughs> Somebody said faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Okay. Somebody else? John 1. John 1. In the beginning was the word. The word. Okay. In the beginning. Yes. Jesus quoted uh, Genesis 2 about the marriage. Marriage. You, the, uh, you've heard it said, uh, man shall leave his mother and father and, and cleave to his wife. Okay. Added to that. All right. What else? Okay, genealogies. Time promises together. Told you I don't have the exhaustive list, so th- those are all good. I think you've got them, some of them. <laughs> hey, think of anything else in Hebrews? You got you got that furrowed brow look. Was it Isaiah where he uh, talks about the greatest command where it says, Love God with all your heart? And then Jesus quotes it. Jesus says that in the New Testament also. Yes, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, yep, the Shema. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Is that from Genesis or just in the law, the, the Pentateuch? Okay. Yeah, no, that's not, Yeah, see, and that's the Genesis, the one book, the Pentateuch. You hear the, a lot of the laws, all five, like the Deuteronomy passage, all that. Okay. I said, I just wondered what is fresh in your mind. We'll get to a type here in a minute, uh, but in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Melchizedek uh, is referenced and paralleled to Christ. Uh, so, very important, this book that we hear over and over again. The key lesson, God created us for blessings, primary blessing being a relationship with himself uh, and chose us to be a blessing to the world. Sin messed things up, but from the beginning God had a plan to restore things to their original state, which is that we can have a relationship with God. So there's that whole big picture, starting, beginning, uh, but even then having glimpses all the way back in Genesis, uh, and we'll talk about this, the seed of woman and overcoming, so that God tells you from the beginning, right at the gate when sin enters in, 
this isn't the end. This is just part of the plan and how God's going to work it out. Christ in Genesis. This is a very important uh, context here, and we will do this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these are referred to as some types. Uh, these are these are places where we see uh, mentions and references of Jesus back to the book of Genesis. Just mentioned Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman who would uh, crush the head of Satan. Said Satan would bruise his heel, but um, Christ, the, the Messiah, seed of woman, would crush his head. Uh, the lineage that's there, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the tribe of Judah. All those things become important in that lineage and seeing this promise come through. Types, Adam is a type. Uh, we're compared to Paul in Romans, talks about the first Adam who sinned and then the second Adam who didn't sin. So sin came in by one man, so sin can go out by way of another man who came and lived perfectly in that way. Adam, head of the old creation. Christ, head of the new creation. Uh, Abel's offering. Melchizedek, I just mentioned here, made like the Son of God. Hebrews 7. Uh, He was prophet, priest, and king. Fulfilled those three roles as Jesus did. Prophet, uh, priest, mediator before God, and then the eternal king. And so Melchizedek was that type all the way back in Genesis where Abraham meets him and pays tribute to this one uh, who fulfilled those three roles. And then the author of Hebrews really uh, hammers that out. Who wrote Hebrews, by the way? (laughs) Oh, I love it. Look, a little controversy. Yeah. Okay. You'll hear Paul's name quite a bit. And hey, if anybody ever asks about any book in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, go with Paul, all right? He wrote over half of it anyway. So you can ask my five-year-old who wrote something. He's going to tell you Paul right out the gate, all right? Because they, they know. Uh, the authorship of Hebrews is one that uh, is a little debated and contested. Uh, a lot of the writing doesn't match how Paul wrote in other ways. Doesn't mean he couldn't have written differently. Paul was very educated, very trained. Uh, but you can read some, some arguments for uh, different individuals. Uh, I kind of like Apollos as a candidate, but hey, who knows? You know, it's that, that's one of those things we can talk about when we get to heaven and, and we'll get to play the video back and see how it all shook out. But regardless, in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to go there here in just a minute, um, you see a lot of references, a lot of this important teaching drawing from the book of Genesis. Joseph, also seen as a type of Christ, uh, seeing the, uh, their, their paths there, spe- objects of special love by their fathers, hated by their brethren, brethren rejected, uh, as rulers, conspired against, sold for silver, condemned, though innocent, and raised uh, from humiliation to glory by the power of God. So I uh, got that comparison there, a lot of, a lot of cool parallels. Structure, uh, you see the 11 separate units through that, the nutshell outline, uh, origin of the universe, the creation, the fall, the flood, the confusion of tongues, and then the origin of the Hebrew nation, the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. So uh, we'll pick that up and we'll start diving into it next week. But I do want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the most... we call it. Con- this is the section where you got the, the most concentration of references and teaching from the book of Genesis in the entire New Testament. It's the faith chapter. Someone mentioned it earlier as, as we were referencing the book of Genesis in the New Testament. A ton of references here. And it's... Great. I love this chapter, and I want to. I kind of want to end on this because of the importance of the emphasis. This is called the. I just mentioned it. The faith chapter. It's about faith, and a lot of people say, "Well, the Old Testament said that that's the works system. You brought the sacrifices, you did the stuff at the temple. The Old Testament is about works in your salvation and your relationship with God." No, it's always been about faith. 
You bring, and, and the Old Testament, we'll see this, where God says, if you're just coming, bringing the, the offerings and the sacrifices, going through the motion, and your heart's not right, you're not forgiven. You're not made right with me. It has always been a heart issue that you bring these offerings with a right heart. And in the New Testament, Jesus became the offering, but you come to him with a right heart. It's not about works. It, it's not about, you know, a magic prayer. It's with a right heart by faith. And so I love this chapter because it drives home this point about faith. It is we take it on faith and it goes back and it tells us that all the way from the beginning it's always been about faith. Not about works but by the faith of these individuals. And he highlights 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of the old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There was nothing and then there was something. All right, we take that by faith. Origins. We, we have to, and even if you have, you know, we talk with the whole evolution and stuff, they, they take an element of faith at some point too. How did it start? Well, just with a bang. You're taking that on faith, all right? That there, there's a faith element regardless of which side you want to come at this. Uh, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His actions, his legacy, give your best to God. And God accepts when we give with a right heart our best uh, to him. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God through his faith in his right heart. Verse 6 and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7 by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Hadn't rained, hadn't had the flood. And God said, Noah, go build a boat. Noah said, okay, I'm taking it on faith that I need to build a boat for what's going to happen in the future. That's a huge step of faith. And the ridicule of the people, what are you doing, Noah? It's faith that he stepped out in obedience. Uh, by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was looking past just the, the promised land that was there, but this future city of which God would build for him. Verse 11, by faith Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 17, can I move down here? So by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offer 
offspring be named. We often hear references to Isaac being the dress rehearsal for what God would do in Christ in sacrificing his son. He called Abraham as a test of faith. Abraham was willing to go through with it, trusting that God could even resurrect him from the dead, the author of Hebrews says. He was stopped short. God completed that for the benefit of mankind. Verse 19, uh, he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And there's the book of Genesis in a nutshell on faith with the key players that we've mentioned. And, you know, the the thing with Joseph, Joseph had faith. Our people are not going to stay in Egypt. He says, when you leave Egypt, take my bones home with you. I don't want them here. Take them with you. You're like, well, we're here. We're settled. We're doing well. Joseph, you've provided for us. Joseph, by faith, you're not going to be here. God's moving you. God knows we take it by faith. All right? Good enough. So this is your synopsis. Next week, we, uh, we pick up in Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll get into the text. And like I said, most likely, probably up through the end of October, we'll be in Genesis, and then we'll kind of get, get moving out of there. All right? Well, let's pray. And then uh, if you are interested or, or want to go spend some extra time in prayer, uh, the Intercessory Prayer Group will do that. Uh, if not, I'm up here for some questions uh, related to anything. And uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of faith. Your word teaches us, Lord, that faith is not even something that we muster. It is a gift in and of itself that you give to us to be able to believe in you uh, and, Lord, to trust in your promises. And, Lord, we see these examples. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, and, Lord, we have sometimes have called that the hall of faith or the hall of saints. And, Father, we see these individuals uh, who walked in faithful obedience to you, Lord. They stepped out in faith. They weren't perfect. And, Lord, we're reminded that, Lord, we're not going to be perfect, but Lord, we don't have to be perfect to still be used by you, but Lord, we need to seek after you. We need to trust you, and Father, we need to obey you when you call us, regardless of how big that call may be. We can step out in faith, and we know that you are with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us, and God, you're able to bring good uh, out of our lives and out of everything that we encounter and everything that we go through. Lord, I pray this week in our time of study through Psalm 19 that you'll continue to speak to us, help us to have a greater and a deeper appreciation for your word. Uh, Lord, may we understand more and more who you are, how great is your love for us, and Father, what you desire to accomplish, Lord, through us, for the sake of the gospel, uh, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.